Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic cult and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, we're delighted to have as our guest writer, film historian, and filmmaker Stephen Awalt, author of the book Steven Spielberg and Duel, The Making of a Film Career. Stephen also served as the founding editor and digital content producer for Ambling.com, the official website of Spielberg's Amblin Partners from 2018 to 2022. More recently, he's been working on books on the making of Joe Dante's Gremlins and Richard Donner's Goonies. Welcome, Steve. Hi, Steve. Good to meet you. Great to meet you. You know, you and I are kind of kindred spirits because you're doing forensic studies of classic films. And I started my career as a Cinefantastique staffer. I, made... I remember reading your articles when I was oh. a boy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, terrific. Uh, you know, I just I love the fact that we can kind of treat a movie like a archaeological dig, you know, trying to piece together everything we can to figure out how these movies were made. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Did How, how far back do you go in your love of film? Um, if I can hold that for one second, I love that you said treating them like an archaeological dig. Oh, I've used sure. that, same, that same exact analogy because um, film history is almost like that. Even like one of the books you mentioned, I'm working on Goonies, um, Warner Brothers kept saying, not to talk off out of the, uh, church or, or uh, the synagogue or anything, but um, they kept saying, oh, we don't have any more files on it. We don't have any more. So I kept pestering my editor saying, they've got to have more. I've talked to people who have gone into the archives and seen things. And he kept pestering them for me against his better judgment. And it's like they knocked down a whole wall and, you know, light streamed in, some snakes fell out, and then they found treasure trove of more Goonies uh, notes and, and designs and everything. And it's like, it feels almost like a treasure treasure hunt for one, but then being able to piece these things together. But I digress. I just love that you you. Oh use no that no! And, and listen, one of my favorite memories is being on the 20th Century Fox lot in 1976, and I was in the one of the old warehouses, and one of the guys was taking me on a little bit of a tour, and he opened a filing cabinet, and handed me the key set still book for the day the Earth stood still, the original. Oh. God. And uh, he says, uh, you just get this back to me when you can. I walked off the lot with the set still book. That would never happen today. I would probably no, be arrested. No. <laughs> not only did I have photos of every set featured in that classic movie, but I had photos of Gork on the set with his visor up. And you could see Locke Martin, you know, oh, the wow. actor. I couldn't believe it. I, I was I, I was just stunned. And uh, <laughs> did they let you publish them anywhere? Yeah, they were all published in the, the magazine in Cinefantastique. Oh, wow. The, I'm going to have to go back and look at back issues oh, and yeah. find that. The previous year, in my very first retrospective, it was on a Warner Brothers title called Them. Which oh, yeah, I love them. Uh, Michael Giacchino is remaking that. Right. As, right. as director, yeah. No, I have heard all about it. I'm very jealous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but um, I went over to Warner Brothers, and uh, this is, again, mid-70s, and they let me into the still archives, and I was able to pull three behind-the-scenes shots. I don't think anybody had ever seen 
a behind the scenes shot from them. So it was, it opened up a whole world for me because I was, I was fresh out of college. I was bumping my head on various ideas and, and just on a lark, I had been researching a book on combat films and I interviewed Ted Sherdeman, the writer of a movie called Hell to Eternity, a World War II movie about Guy Gabaldon, uh, who was a ja American of Hispanic descent who was raised by Japanese. And um, just offhand during the end of the interview, he, Ted Sherdeman turns to me and says, kind of reminds me what I did on them. And, you know, in those days, pre-internet, we had no idea about people's credits where you'd have to go down to the motion picture library and really look in some of the key books. So it was just, it was just great. And that's when I wrote to Fred Clark, it's in a fantastic. And I said, would you be interested in an interview with the writer of them? But let's, let's get back to you. So uh, where would you say your beginning of film scholarship begins? Um, I have to say as a, a boy, actually, and I would credit a lot of that because when I grew up, I, I was born in um, 73, so I'm 50 right now. And I, you talking about um, the era that you started writing in, uh, it's fascinating because you look at films from the 50s, like you were talking about the two that you got those treasures from, you know, the end titles, they gave you nothing. The opening titles gave you barely much more. There weren't really end titles at that point. It wasn't until more than more or less the 1970s when we got the massive credit rolls so you could see every practically everybody who did something on a film so that made archaeology to use that again harder for your generation which brings me back to my generation um we learned from from you um the late bill warren um mick garris who's a personal friend now um there's so many people, uh, Cinefantastic, Fangoria, especially Fangoria. I was a big fan of that. And uh, Starlog. Um, there's another uh, movie making. What was that oh, called? Was the Don Shays magazine. Uh, Cineplex. Well, Cineplex, of course. Um, one of my best friends was an editor for them for a couple of decades. Cinefax. What a loss that was over the pandemic that that magazine or period, not even a uh, journal that that has um, ceased to exist. As a researcher now, all of the magazines that I've talked about that you worked on and, and um, my generation grew up with, and Cinefax in particular, and, and American Cinematographer, which still exists, thank God, um, those are key sources for covering a lot of these films from the 70s and 80s and, and so on. So um, my... Uh, my scholarship really began as a boy, and it's because of people like yourself and other writers that I look up to still to this day. Um, I had your James Bond book when I was a boy too, so thank you, for, <laughs> thank you for your work in oh, well, thank you for, in, in thank educating you. us. <laughs> thank you for perching us. That that's great. That's great. So um, you, I'm going to pull up uh, a, a photo. I'm not, not the photo. I, I have a feeling this was, uh, and forgive this. I can't share the whole image because. Uh, of uh, the 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 oh uh, yeah digitals, but I, I assume that this was the poster that was created when they went to a theatrical for Europe. Is that true? That's correct, and that's the best poster. There's so many posters out there. I wish um I wish my book had more imagery in it, but there were a couple things. It was an academic publisher, so limited, and then also Universal only has. I want to say it was less than 20 photographs on file. A lot of them were pretty rough shape. Some of them were um, uh, cell enlargements, which 
you know, that's common enough, frame enlargements, um, common enough, but um, they were so, I, I worked with the archives um, studios at Amblin had worked with for decades. And some of the shape of some of the older films, their archival material on them, you know, things were different. As you know well, um, the studios weren't always great with, with how they kept and handled material. Oh yeah. Well, also, so, um, also I would assume that television movies compared to theatrical movies were kind of like the stepchild when it exactly. came to great still photography. Yeah, that was that was my next point. That um, it being a television film, you know, Stephen had made a number of really impressive uh, episodics, and um, technically, um, you know, I talk in the book about Duel being his first made-for-TV feature, and then essentially his first theatrical feature as far as the rest of the world, not America. But um, he'd already made two films for series that were as long as Duel, um, the original cut of Duel, at least. Um, LA 2017 from um, The Name of the Game, if you remember that uh, omnibus show. It was, um, his episode starred Gene Barry, and it was a... Um, a sci-fi film, even though the series wasn't sci-fi, Gene Barry played a uh, rich magazine publisher in it who passes out from gases in 1971 from uh, his automobile. And, you know, smog back then was especially a huge concern. And then he wakes up in um, uh, LA 17, uh, 2017. <laughs> I couldn't think of the year. It's right in the title. And um, so that was ostensibly from a series, but it was a standalone feature film. And then I've, he also- It's, it's funny because I've never I've never heard of this. Uh, I talk about it out. in the book, but it's, um, that's one of the ones I really wish, and I, I was working on this at Amblin, but then there were so many um, personnel changes. I was really trying to push through uh, Marvin Levy, Stevens, longtime uh, personal agent um, from Back to Close Encounters. I was trying to push to get Universal to put out even even just a digital box set of Stevens TV work, but we never even got it up to Stevens desk for his thoughts on it. But I was fighting the good fight because he's just amazing work even before Duel that I think people should be able to see. Um, I don't know if he would want all of it seen at this point, but he has nothing to be ashamed of because it's incredible to look at. Um, I mean, even his first night gallery um, eyes with- um, um, John Crawford. Thank you. I'm sorry. I told you it's late. And <laughs> here in Chicago, it's late and my memory is slipping. Um, with Joan Crawford, it's not his best TV work, but my God, you look at it and it's like, how could somebody in his early 20s have commanded this? Uh, her performance in it's fantastic. And um, I think everybody's performances are fantastic in that. And it's still baffling, even all the way up to like the Sugarland Express. How did this kid get these very mature performances, you know, out of people sometimes triple his age, but also where did the um, the emotional maturity and insight come to, to character and, and their stories? And it's it's ineffable in a way, I think. So he's uh, obviously he's a special filmmaker. <laughs> oh, yeah. And we all got an age education in the past year because of the Fablements. I mean, for the first time, we got an idea of where Stephen came from. I love the opening of the Fablements. He's sitting there watching the greatest show on earth. And I'm saying to myself, I love that movie. It's, it's, it's a movie that's not really in favor, but no. uh, <laughs> it, had, 
there, there's some big problems with the greatest show on earth and it certainly didn't deserve best picture that year but there's some still there's some great things to enjoy in the greatest show on earth yeah particularly the train wreck which was done yeah. you know with with miniatures but looked terrific and yeah it still looks fun and exciting and and terrifying even because you worry about the people and the animals and um that's something actually in the dual book i was um i was on a train uh coming from downtown chicago back to the suburbs where i lived with my family back when i was uh interviewing and, and researching it and i remembered and and for me to see fablemans was kind of trippy because i i having studied Stephen his work especially but also biographical elements since i was a boy um i remembered the uh, instance of him talking about crashing his his uh, lionel train set and then it hit me being on the train and thinking of crashing and, and you know, duel at the crash at the end, it hit me that it's like duel was almost custom made for this boy who his first film ever was to film his trains crashing because he was influenced by DeMille. And then, so I equate that to uh, set up the scene, like at the end of uh, duel, when they're up filming that at the cliffside. And so my, um, the first chapter in the duel book starts out with that, illusion between the two so as i started to say seeing um the fablemans recreate those scenes that i recreated in non-fiction but you know talking about them as actual scenes events in his life it was um it was almost surreal and he changed a couple things in fablemans from reality so as a historian i'm like that's not right but of course <laughs> <laughs> well let, let me let, let me ask you um sure. what what kind of led you to do the dual book what was the catalyst okay um this is always a tough story to tell because it's kind of involved but I'll, I'll make it as short as possible uh back in 1999 uh the internet was starting to more movie sites and things were starting to come online and i always knew I was a writer since I was eight years old, um, always wanted to write about films. So I decided to teach myself HTML back then, the basics. And I built a website from scratch um, just to write about Steven's films, just because I he's my favorite filmmaker, although I love scores of filmmakers from throughout history and throughout the world. He was really an influence on me as a boy. Um, so, and still to this day he is. So, um, I decided I wanted to just write about his films and just get the writing out there online. So I launched, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I took a year to build and write uh, the opening for SpielbergFilms.com, which was a site I ran from, I launched it in 2000 and ran it through 2009. In the middle of that run, um, I'd never written Stephen a fan letter or anything. I've never done that to anyone. Uh, now I try to tell people when I meet them how much I appreciate their work, but I always thought it was, you know, they don't need me bothering them. Well, in 2006, Stephen wrote me a letter that arrived at our house. I didn't know it was coming. And um, I, uh, it, it meant a lot. I opened it, saw a signature, and I actually fell to my knees and started crying because, you know, <laughs> the, the man I looked up to more than um, I, I grew up without a dad for the most part. And so Stephen was, you know, as a boy reading about his adventures, making films. He was a Boy Scout. I was a Boy Scout. He um, didn't drink and smoke. I was a, a good kid too. And so, and his creativity, of course, was boundless. And then reading about him going around the world and making films. And so I, I really looked up to him morally, but also creatively. And um, so to see him writing me a letter, it 
before I even read it, it broke me down. And he essentially wrote um, that he'd been reading Spielberg films for years and he finally had time to stop from working on films and take a break and, and write me. And he thanked me specifically for my, um, my writing on Munich because um, I think that's one of his greatest films. I think it's one of the bravest acts of, that a filmmaker has ever committed in the way that he made that film because he obviously, you know, as, as a Jew, he feels passionately, and you know, this is a, a very tough topic right now. Um, but I think he, he took a, um, he took a beautiful stance not to demonize one side or the other. Um, he looked at it as a reporter and, um, and it's a really incredible, you know, thriller and action film. And there was a lot of kickback toward him online before people even saw a frame of the film, um, which was unfortunate. And from a lot of Jewish writers, unfortunately, I think that film, it'll have its day in time. Um, but so he thanked me for my writing on Munich, which meant a lot. And then um, he told me uh, he was a fan of my writing in closing. And, they, you know, that was really generous of him. And um, so then that same, like a few months later, he was in Chicago um, to accept an award from the Chicago International Film Festival. And that was the first time we met in person. I interviewed him uh, and met uh, Roy Scheider as well that night. Stephen introduced me to Roy Scheider and it was, and he said, this this kid writes a, a website about all my films. It's brilliant. Be nice to him. And Mr. Scheider was <laughs> wonderfully nice. But um, so then, um, let's see. See, it is a long story. I was finishing um, a, 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 a master's degree in um, historiography and theory in film. And I decided to close Spielberg films because it was a lot of work and because I wanted to write books on on films not just Stephen but so far I've been a lot on Stephen and Amblin uh, productions and so I wrote him to ask if he would be um give me his blessing to write a book on Duel and the reason I picked Duel is because it's kind of a starting point where I wanted to talk about his upbringing um and his his work as an amateur filmmaker going into TV and then talk about the whole production I go scene by scene through Duel and then um talk about that launching him on the international stage and then, you know, coming back and it led to Sugarland Jaws and an amazing career that it's, it's, it's funny at, after a 50 plus year career, he's had so many beloved films that he's at the point like others like Scorsese, et cetera, where people forget how many great films they have. Even there's certain gems that have started to be, you know, forgotten in this day and age. And, um, so that's why I started at Duel. And then to bring us, I guess, kind of to the present, um, I was then in uh, an MFA for directing. And right before I started my thesis phase, Amblin called and asked me if I'd um, come to work for him building a website for the company, talking about, I think I wrote about 325 films eventually on the whole website from Stephen's earliest days through to the current productions back to 2022. So I had that gig for five years and uh, lived out in LA at that time. And currently I'm back in Chicago, finishing the MFA and uh, working on a couple of books now. So, What was Stephen's response when you asked him if he would cooperate with a dual book? Oh, it was generous as he always is. He was excited about it, um, opened up his 
personal archives to me and they started sending me things right away. And then Universal, of course, was wonderfully cooperative. And then I like to tell this story just in case Stephen hears it because I think it's funny. I didn't even get a chance to ask him for an, an interview for the book. He invited me to Amblin to interview him. And I thought, what a chutzpah. Who knows? How does he presume I want to interview him for the book? Of course I did. <laughs> I just I just thought that was so sweet that he invited me to interview him before I even got the chance to ask. He's, he's always been really kind to me. I my my uh, one experience with him uh, relates to uh, Saving Private Ryan. I did a twentieth oh. anniversary piece for the L.A. Times in eighteen, yeah. and he couldn't have been nicer. I I was traveling with my family in Scotland. I've known Marvin for years because oh. Marvin's son Don uh, and I started as publicists together back in the seventies. Oh wow! So I knew Don, and then obviously I knew Marvin. And Marvin has always been very helpful to me when I told him that I had pitched the LA Times calendar for a piece on the 20th anniversary. Marvin arranged it, but I was on I was traveling with the family in Scotland and I got the call in the middle of Scotland, practically in the middle of nowhere, saying that Stephen will be available to speak with you tomorrow at 10. So I scrambled and I ended up recording the interview on my iPhone. And uh, it was it was really a lot of fun. I think I was promised 12 minutes and I got 25. So that was that was typical, Stephen. And I, I also yeah. got a nice letter after I finished the article. He wrote me and said, I'm glad you wrote this piece, which was a, which was a thrill for me. Yeah. See how he's he's always been thoughtful like that. And people. You know, they I, I had. um I shouldn't talk about these things in public, but somebody in the L.A. Times after I interviewed him the first time. They they called me an acolyte just because I speak kindly of someone who's been an influence in my I thought that was insulting to my intelligence and my academic background and you know but um, no he's just he's just a very kind person as pretty much anybody who has talked to him will tell you um, we need more people like that in the industry in all industries but especially in the film industry he's always been a gentleman and an absolute professional when I feel lesser about myself if I get annoyed by people and say something publicly I think I get ashamed with myself I wish I were more like Stephen <laughs> because he's a gentleman for the listeners and viewers um we should set the table a little bit of talking a little bit about tv movies in the 70s the the tv movie business was thriving and if you know a lot of these movies have been forgotten over the years because there wasn't a lot of motivation to re-release them or give them a lot of fanfare. I remember uh, in addition to Duel, there were movies like The Night Stalker, which was also based on a Richard Matheson story. And, um, you know, there were uh, the house, let's see, Crowhaven Farm, I remember, all these kind of genre stories that were just terrific. And um, let's let's put up, uh, let's actually just put up a nice picture of Stephen just so I we can have context here. Um, you know, there we go. Oh, that's an older one. That looks about Close Encounters era, maybe. Yeah, that's a little bit older. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, talk about a, a, a boy wonder. And uh, tell, tell us a little bit what you remember about how Duel came to be. Did it start with Stephen or did it start with Richard? Because I know Richard uh... Anderson... He wrote a like a short story that appeared in Playboy, right? That's that's correct. Um, I, I I'm so grateful I got to talk to Mr. Matheson. Um, I think he and one other person 
from the production. I talked to him and then by the time the book was released, they had both passed, unfortunately. But um, Richard, he's told this story before, but he told it to me and, and it's in the book. Um, he came up with the story. Um, he was uh, out golfing. You remember who Jerry Soul was, Twilight Zone? Sure, sure. Also, yeah. I, wasn't he involved with Star Trek as well? Yeah, I believe he was. Yeah. And um, good friends with Richard. And they were out in, um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but they were out golfing um, on the day President um, um, Kennedy was shot. And on the way back from the golf course, they left the game early because obviously everybody was very upset that day. Uh, November 11th, 16th. Uh, November 22nd. 20 seconds close oh you know what i think duel came out on november 11th or 13th so that's those dates always get caught in my mind in this but ironically enough um it was in november when richard in 62 when richard came up with the story 63 and 63 thank you historian <laughs> it's late and i don't have notes um so um he came up with it on the ride back because Jerry was driving, he was sitting in the passenger seat and they got cut off on the road by a trucker. And they were of course full of rage and confusion because the president of the United States had just been murdered in Dallas. So the trucker cut him off and they had to go onto a shoulder and you know almost crashed. And in that moment, Richard got the idea, uh, man, or truck pursues man through desert, game of cat and mouse. And he wrote it on a uh, bill or something or an envelope in Jerry's glove box, took it home, put it in a drawer for better part of a decade because he thought eh, he tried to sell it to the fugitive TV series. They said it didn't have enough meat to it. So then he put it in a drawer and forgot about it. But then in 1971, he decided to write a short story of it and he sold it to a uh, Playboy and it was published in the April 71 issue of Playboy. And the Funny thing, I love this, and Stephen loves telling this story. He had a um, a personal assistant, or what we call the secretary back then, but a personal assistant, who um, her name was Nona Tyson, and she was a he described her in a matronly manner. Um, she he said she really had his number because she happened to read the story in Playboy, and he's like, Nona, what are you doing reading Playboy magazine? Well, Playboy's got great interviews, or it once had great interviews, brilliant fiction by some of the greatest writers of all time, great comics. Uh, so Miss Tyson read Richard Matheson's story and she said, I think this is right up your alley. And I've heard that a producer on the lot has the rights to it already. And so um, she helped Stephen track the producer down and um, he was in the middle of working on um, his other near feature length after LA 2017, Columbo Murder by the Book. I'm assuming you've seen that one. because uh, I haven't. Okay. I'm, ter I'm terribly, uh, I have too many holes in my Stephen filmography. Well, even share. in general, if you're a Columbo fan, that's a corker of an episode. It's got um, uh, Jack Cassidy, who was in Columbo numerous times. Oh, sure, sure. You know, Jack Cassidy always played a wonderful cad and a nasty little villain. So he, he gives a great performance in that. And um, so it was near feature length and Stephen was cutting that. So he took that to, to the producer as, you know, evidence of his work and um, he was blown away and he gave the kid the job. And uh, it was, they tried to get it as a feature but um, it wound up a ABC uh, TV movie of the week, which as you were saying, it was a boom 
oh, I think the first TV movie might have been uh, aired back all the way back to 64. But by the 70s, there were all kinds of all kinds of genre films, everything, which is funny because, you know, the the um, the studios desperately were trying to compete with television back in the 1950s, especially. And that's what got us, you know, widescreen and VistaVision and big cinemascope. And by the um, by the mid 60s, throughout the 70s, they were trying to uh, keep people at home. The studios themselves were trying to keep people at home watching movies of the week. And um I mean, if you had looked at our TV schedules back in the 70s, virtually every night had a movie night. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I named my show Saturday Night at the Movies after NBC's Saturday Night at the Movies. I think I saw a lot of movies back in 62 when they debuted Saturday Night at the Movies because they featured a lot of Fox titles that year. And I saw these movies for the first time because they were movies from the 50s. And there was Sunday night, the movies, Monday night, the movies, Tuesday, every night. I mean, and it's so funny because you compare the schedules today and broadcast doesn't do movies anymore. It's funny. Back in the day, not only were there network primetime movie slots, but there was also the late show and there was uh, fabulous 52, all these movie uh, venues for watching old movies. It, It was it was kind of interesting. You know, we, we, we suffered through commercials in those days. Well, it was, I, I remember um, as a, a very young boy in the seventies, um, God, uh, you know, back in 77, I was four and a half when Star Wars came out and that's the one that exploded my mind. And then the next year, um, Close Encounters, Close Encounters came out late in 77, but it didn't get to Illinois until 78. And then that one further blew my mind. And so I was I was fairly young, four or five years old. And that was pre-VHS. So I remember as a young boy, um, throughout the 70s, uh, the latter half of the 70s into the 80s, TV Guide, which I'm sure a lot of kids don't even know what that is now. You'd, you'd pour through the TV Guide looking for, especially for me, monster movies. And um, and then when they, you know, they bring on... Um, uh, Close Encounters on television, Jaws, Superman the movie, um, even 1941. I've been a big fan of 1941 since I saw it on television. Oh, I, I'm still a big fan of 1941. It's, I, it's, it's I hilarious. See some of the I flaws. <laughs> I see some of the flaws. I mean, it's a little, it's a little mis- misogynistic and it's a little racist, but it's yeah. the period. Yeah. It has exactly. It, it, I, I'm also a big fan of uh, it's a mad, 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 mad world. And obviously 1941 was inspired by that as well. Hugely. Hysterical moment. One of my favorite guests we had her on uh, earlier this year. I had Lorraine Gary on as well. Oh God. Guests. And she, I need to go find that. How how is she? If you don't mind me asking, oh, she's in the middle fine. Of a- she's fine. It's so funny because we talked about Jaws first, and then we talked about 1941. And I was all set to ask her about the wonderful relationship she had with Roy Scheider on Jaws, and then she told me they didn't get along at all. Oh no! <laughs> I he was he was not very her. nice to her, which uh, is oh, sad. But Lorraine was terrific. I know her son John very well. You know John Scheinberg. And um, we were we were publicists together at Columbia back in the seventies. So yeah, that was a good get. So let me put up another picture here. While you're doing that, I wanted to mention um, I was very fortunate uh, on the dual book to talk to her late uh, husband Sid Scheinberg, uh, you know, who helped Stephen um, get his career with Universal, and then was uh, just a guardian angel to Stephen throughout his time with Universal. 
And um, Sid was fantastic. I was told by others that he was a tough interview, but he was wonderful. Um, I even got him laughing. I'm very proud of that. So <laughs> I, I had a great conversation with him that I Here's, a, here's a question. When you interviewed him, do you remember if he was wearing a sweater? We were over the phone, unfortunately, because oh, I was okay. still in Chicago. He, he was always wearing sweaters. So here I've put up a nice picture of Dennis Weaver. Um, yeah. I read a little bit on a couple, a couple of the websites that there was... Is it true that David Jansen turned down the role in your research? Did you hear that? I, I don't remember off the top of my head. I'm sure I talk about it in the book, but there were a number of people um, Stephen tried to get, especially when they're trying to push it for a... Um, uh, Theatrical. feature film the theatrical yeah mm. now once once Stephen hit upon Dennis Weaver um he instantly thought of um pardon me <laughs> you're gonna have to cut around me too um, uh, touch, of, he, touch of evil touch of evil thank you he instantly thought of touch of evil and how high strung Mr. Weaver's character was in that which is you know way up here compared to David Mann even but it was it was interesting thinking this guy could you know, I can bring him down to this level. Obviously, he's a very talented actor. And he was on McLeod at the, during that era. And um, I think it was great casting because Dennis Weaver, he has a certain masculinity, especially of a man of that era in the 1970s. But he also had a fragility to him, too, especially when you see him in something like Touch of Evil. He's, you know, he's a wreck. But um, I, I think he was really great casting because he's identifiable. He wasn't like too masculine, but he wasn't like a wet towel either. Obviously in the film, he finally, you know, he straps that seatbelt on and he's ready to go. So I think, I think he's pretty, pretty perfect casting in that. Um, sometimes, you know, films come together in, in, um, in really special ways and you wind up with the person who should have been in the role. And um, I can't think of anybody else who could play uh, David Mann better. Steve, in your research, did you find out what a typical TV movie was budgeted at in those days? Off the top of my head, I'm terrible with remembering numbers, but um, I think this was in the standard ballpark range. Obviously, it didn't have any massive names. Um, he was under contract uh, for McLeod. So I don't know if that factored into what his salary was, and I, uh, Dennis Weaver's salary, and I, I wasn't privy to that. But... Um, the interesting thing I think about Duel, it wasn't unprecedented, but it was still um, somewhat rare for, for early 1970s, the fact that they shot it out on location. And in the book and in general, Stephen talked about he had an old hand, um, Wally Worsley, who was the uh, production manager, and he'd been around for forever and was a tough, tough production manager. But Stephen won him over because... Um, Wally said, you know, we're going to have to film this process. Like people will remember, you know, Mr. Hitchcock, of course, loved to film process all the way to family plot in 76. He never, never shot, you know, with a picture car on the road. And it gives um, shooting process. Nowadays, it's better. Back then, it, it gave a film a completely false theatrical reality. And um, uh, one of the worst examples is in Dr. No, when James Bond is being chased by the hearse. And Jamaica, yeah. and it's it's yeah, it's it, it's it's process, but um, yeah. yeah, no, this this was uh, this was very cool that they were had real cars and real trucks. Yeah, yeah, and there was a there's a charm to process, but it wouldn't have fit dual. And Stephen, you know, foresaw that in, in how he pictured the film in his head. So um, 
he proved to Wally that he could get the day's work done and um, they wound up not having to come back to do process shots. And um, yeah, they were out on the road uh, north of um, Universal area, you know, up in Acton. And um, uh, it's incredible. I, I, was watching, um, I was watching another TV movie just this week, Wes Craven's um, Summer of Fear. And I swore some of the auto chases, I don't know if you're familiar with that movie, but some of the auto chases, I was like, God, this looks like they might've been up in the same area as Duel, but it turned out not to be. But it has such a character. Um, you have to, I, again, I can't picture, like if somebody were to remake Duel, to set it up in what you know feels like you're getting into almost desert territory in some spots, it helps isolate the character more and more. So just... Um, to have found those locations to shoot in was was advantageous for the film as well. And to keep it um, purely in a realistic vibe, I, I think it just, I couldn't picture the film with process. It would have ruined the, the terror of it all. Well, you know, it's interesting in analyzing Steven's career and obviously with the Fablemans, we saw a lot of how it all came together when he got his first camera, but he, He's a filmmaker. I, I want to say that there's an organic quality about him. He seems to grasp the perfect place to put the camera and to be very creative <laughs> in his style. I mean, TV movies, let's face it, most TV movies are not in those days were not done with a lot of style. I mean, they were there were good ones. And certainly uh, I think it was I'm trying to remember the director of the Night Stalker. I think it may have been. Oh, um. Is it Geno Swark? Uh, no, no. Um, uh, of the first uh, Night Stalker, not um, the sequel. Yeah. Um, British director uh, Llewellyn. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but um, um, yes, John Llewellyn Moxie. That's right. That yeah. those two, um, Mr. Matheson wrote both of those screenplays, uh, right, the original and right. the sequel. It had nothing to do with, and it, nor did Dan Curtis. Had nothing to do with um, the series. Which I have right. a fondness for still, but those two TV movies are aces. Oh no, and, um, I would I would put match those up against any movie today. And I think that Stephen just—it's funny because if you're dealing with machines, you know, Stephen always seemed to have a fondness for not only putting machines in his movies, but filming them in an interesting way. I mean, off the top of my head, I remember the the five. TBM Avenger planes at the beginning of Close Encounters, the way they're shot, the way he goes in and out of the cockpit, you know, the way they, it, just a lot of those things, the physicality, the understanding of them. So giving him a car being chased by a 18 wheeler was just a perfect setup for him. And um, did he talk, I know that he loves the fact that he shot the movie fast. Was it a comfortable uh, shooting experience for him? Um, if you read read the book, we go throughout, like I said, the entire production, and I go throughout the entire film, dissecting it, but also talking about the production scene to scene. And um, I'd say from the impression I got from everyone, it was very, I don't know if comfortable would be the right word. It was a lot of hard work, obviously, to get this, this film in the can. And um, it, it varies 13 to 16 days. The, the schedule varied, but um, they had a few days, you know, doing um, inserts like uh, speedometer stuff like that. But um, yeah, it was it was just so well planned that um, 
it, it was, and, and also having, you know, a production manager and someone like that, or a UPM and someone like Wally Worsley, who was, Stephen was surrounded by old, old hands, you know, really, really trusted talents. And he was just incredibly sharp and proved himself to, to, to his crew early on that, you know, he did his homework. He, he didn't show up on a set or on location, just, you know, oh, what are we going to do? Nowadays, he actually does that. He'll come early and he, he'll, you know, scope. He doesn't do shot lists. He doesn't do storyboards, hasn't for decades. But back then he did big time. I and mean, the, he, did, he did his homework. Were you yeah. able, to, was Carrie Lofton still alive when you did the book? No, oh, no, unfortunately, yeah. Um, him and, uh, you know, Dale Van Sickle, long gone. Um, we do talk about him a lot. There's a lot of great memories people share about him. And those those two gentlemen were just champions of, of the film. Um, I think uh, it's interesting. I, I, should, I, I, should, I should mention to the listeners and viewers that Kerry Lofton was the stuntman who drove the big rig and uh, who maintains a certain mystery. I don't want to give any spoilers because we're so, we're touting a movie that a lot of you may not have seen. And if you if you get a chance, find Duel and watch it because Duel is not only a, a an insight into early Spielberg, but it's just a corker of a movie. Yeah, and I think it's a good, I think I would suggest film students look at Duel because, um, you know, I've, I've talked with a lot of, friends who, who um, are professors and um, it sounds like, and I don't mean to speak against a whole generation, you know, everybody's an individual, but it sounds like younger people nowadays have a certain time they won't go back past in the film history, which I think is baffling. I think if they want to look at how to do a film on a very tight schedule and, and budget out on locations and everything, which of course you need permits to do this kind of work but i think duel is a great example of kind of almost guerrilla filmmaking but with a studio behind you because they were out there you know in in desert type terrain filming these things they had the roads closed off obviously but um and just seeing how duels put together um how it's edited together it's it's pretty pretty great example of, of action filmmaking and ironically enough it's been announced i don't know if it's close to being greenlit or if it's even still on Steven's schedule but I know within the last couple of years the trades talked about him not doing a remake of um, Bullet the 1968 Steve McQueen film but of continuing the character in you know new adventures I don't know if it would be period or if it would be modern day but so they're going to take the character of Bullet and do something with it Bradley Cooper was who's been attached so far right. um Again, I don't know if that's going to happen, but it's kind of neat because it kind of would be like a little bit of a bookshelving there looking at Duel because Duel, obviously, Stephen studied um, Peter Yates's bullet, and they even used the camera car, that low-slung rig that they had, um, almost, almost kind of like a go-kart to some extent, to um, put the camera on. And that's why when you see Duel, you get so many incredible shots that are just like tearing around the front of the truck and then pulling back again and coming back behind the car. Um, mentioning that's another, dual. That's, oh, another, that's another example of Stephen just using his ingenuity with camera placement and yeah. making sure things are moving constantly. I, what I was watching the other night, I was watching um, Jan de Bond's Speed. Oh yeah. Speed, a lot of the same techniques, uh, you know, probably very much influenced by Stephen's film. Showing the bus careening here, careening there, 
And uh, sure, sure. And again, using the physicality of the situation and placing the camera in those interesting places. And, uh, and not always even just, I mean, they're graphically interesting, but also just revealing uh, tension, revealing story, revealing, um, you know, even just matters of proximity between the two combatants. Um, it's fascinating. I, again, I think it's a real, um, it's almost a little film, action film school in, in one film. And it's funny you mentioned it. Um, one of the reasons we're talking is because um, Duel is um, receiving a 4K. It, it's been uh, remastered in 4K and oh. it's going to be coming out on UHD in um, a few weeks from now, in early November. So um, I think it looked great on Blu-ray. I can't wait to see what they've done with it, uh, remastering it in 4K. It's going to it's going to look pretty beautiful, I bet. Now, the, the studio was so excited uh, with the way this turned out, they realized that although they couldn't release it as a theatrical feature in the U.S., they could re re release it overseas. And is it true that they added um, some scenes for the overseas release? Yeah, four four different scenes. Two of them were Stevens' conception, and two of them were um, his producers. And um, I I don't know. I can't remember if the if the four K is going to have the TV version. I I want to say I think it said it did. It will have it. I personally prefer the TV version. It's leaner. It's, it runs at seventy six minutes, and it's it's tight. Um, I do like some of the added material in the four extra scenes. It adds a little bit more of the um, uh, the conflict that um, David Mann, and this is the version most people have seen, the theatrical version. David Mann's wife, he, he stops at a laundromat and talks to her on the phone, and she kind of um, emasculates him in some in some way because he. Uh, they she talks about they were at a party and um somebody was handsy with her another guest and she said you know david didn't do anything about it to stop him so she kind of emasculates him and that adds obviously to him having to stand up as a man and to save his own life right. and so um and then it also has a segment where he gets stopped to, to try to help a school bus that's stalled and things get tense because the truck comes back and it's threatening and and then there's a part where the um, truck is uh, trying to push him into uh, a train crossing when they're both sitting there waiting and the train's going by. And then the fourth one, going back to the beginning, they added a bit of man leaving suburbia and getting into downtown L.A. and then getting up into the, um, you know, into the outskirts. So I wonder if uh, I wonder if Stephen King, I'm sure he was. I'm sure Stephen King was influenced when he wrote Christine. Chris, yeah. Christine is very much a dual type movie, or I should say yeah. dual type book, which of course became a movie with uh, um, uh, Keith, uh, what's Keith's last name? They star of uh, Gordon. Keith Gordon, right, who yeah. later became a director. Yeah, uh, um, Stephen King's been a, a big fan, an avowed fan of dual since, um, I think the first time he wrote about it was in Dante Macabre, his nonfiction book on horror stories and films. And, and that came out in eighty three if I'm remembering right and um then he introduced his son Joe to it Joe Hill is now a, a famous horror writer and um he's had tv series and films made of his work and um I guess uh Stephen and Stephen King that is um 
they had it on Laserdisc and they'd watch it together back in the 80s all the time. And I wanted to see, I tried to get Stephen or Joe to talk for the book because I knew they were like diehards and I never was able to get them on, on record or anything. But they actually collaborated on a, a story inspired by, you know, King is a massive Matheson fan as well. Um, it's inspired by Matheson's duel and, and Spielberg's duel. It's called Throttle. And it's about these um, uh, motorcycle gang being chased through the desert by a trucker. And very, um, very, uh, I mean, it wears it right on its sleeve. It's, it's I, I, not I, saying. I, one, <laughs> one of my guilty pleasure movies is a movie I'm sure you've heard of called Hot Rods to Hell. I don't know. No, I haven't, but I love the title. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was uh, supposedly, I think Rod Serling contributed a draft. It was originally titled 52 Miles to Terror. And That's Dana, cool Dana Andrews plays a guy who's got a very bad back, but he's driving his family to, to, to the desert from back east to run a motel because it's the only job he can get right now because he's destitute. And on the way to the desert community, they're attacked by these hot rodders. And uh, it's very, Dana Andrews is very much, um, he, it's like early, uh, it's it's early, um, uh, why am I blanking on our guy? Who's, um, um, who's the star of Duel? Uh, Dennis Weaver. Uh, Dennis Weaver, yeah. Early Dennis Weaver, very much so. And uh, the concept of, of dealing with these hoodlums, of course, the, uh, Duels inspired so many, many different types of movies and everything. Yeah. Um, so, so that was called Hot Rods to Hell. Was it like a 1950s movie? Uh, it's actually, I think it's 1964. Okay. I think it's an AIP title. Oh, yeah. That sounds like it would be. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. have to look and, that up. I have a DVD of it. It's, 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 <laughs> it's definitely a fun movie to watch. And Cool. Uh, it's 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 you know what it is it's 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 pleasing pulp. <laughs> I, nothing wrong with that. That's a, that's a good time. In a way, um, duel. You know, duel is pulpy, obviously, in its way. It's it's classy pulp, but it's it's you know what very well made pulp. But it's it's a great little um, thriller. It's it's it's. Uh, and I used to have this um, before I moved to LA. Ironically enough, I used to be totally terrified of driving here in Illinois. And then when I, when I moved out to LA, I forced myself, I'm like, anybody who just lived in LA, you know, you've got to, it's, it's a motorist city. So you've got to get behind the wheel and you've got to be confident. And I was fine. I love driving in LA, funny enough. But um, before that, when I was writing this book, I was like, I hated driving. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think we have to be more careful than ever because when they started adding cell phones into cars, We've created a, a generation of distracted drivers, and many of them are quite obnoxious. And I, I just yeah. I find it to be just intolerable at times. Now you're working on two new books. Uh, you said that you're having some challenges with the Goonies. Well, off, off record on the stuff we talked about before, but it's just um, you know the business and the um, all parties involved when it comes to um, licenses and legalities. Um, but yeah, I've been working on uh, when I was. When I first started writing and building the Amblin website, I, I uh, was working on a small article I wanted to do on Gremlins. And then I wound up talking with Joe Dante for four hours, wound up talking to um, Zach. Um, oh my God, I'm so sorry, Zach. My mind just went totally blank. Zach. Um, yeah, what is uh, Zach's last name? Zach Galligan. Zach Galligan. 
It's late here in Chicago. That's why I've had coffee. Uh, by the way, I, 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 by the way, I'm a Chicago native. Although oh, I've wow. been, I've been in LA since I was four years old. But you're you're looking at one of the bigger Chicago sports fans of all time. I am. You're looking at one of the least Chicago uh, or sports <laughs> fans in general. Um, I always say uh, any activities with. No, I won't make the joke. I was going to make a really crude joke. But, well, um... I'm a diehard Cubs fan. And uh, the first movie I produced for Showtime was called Bleacher Bums. Yeah. It was produced in, 19, in 2002. And I got a chance to ex exercise my cub demons. And of course, we all got to exercise our cub demons in 2016 when they oh, got yeah. the World Series. So, you know, which was really nice to see. And I'll, I'll admit, even though I'm not a sports fan, I, I enjoy going to um, um, uh, Wrigley and, and, and um, Comiskey Park. It's still Comiskey Park. It's got some ridiculous name on it now, like some corporate name. That's Comiskey Park. That's Wrigley Park. And forever they shall be. I say that even as a non-sports fan. So I do love sitting out at a ball game, even though I have no idea what's going on. There's beer. <laughs> it's good. Well, uh, Joe Dante is a fan. I'm a big fan of Joe's. I oh, Joe's, Joe's, Joe's wonderful. Joe did a, one of the episodes of our Rebel Highway series at Showtime. Yes. And uh, really a lot of fun to see him and work. And I've actually tried to, to make some films with him over the years and attaching him. But... It's challenging. Uh, making movies today has all the usual challenges times 10. And then uh, Goonies, I, I, I think, is a really entertaining movie. That's good and to hear because I, I know it has fans who adore it. And then it, a lot of people, um, somebody I heard recently, somebody famous was just like, just like foaming at the mouth about it. And it's like, uh, it's, it wasn't for for me and my, my little sister. We adored that movie. It was perfect target audience because in '85 I was uh, 12 or 13, I think. So it was it was a great adventure. And so I've been working on Gremlins was going to be an article, but it blew up. I said I think I have a book. And my immediate uh, supervisor at Amblin introduced me to a publisher they've been working with, and they said we want the Gremlins book. That's fantastic. Would you write a Goonies book as well? And I said, oh hell yeah, and. Thankfully, despite the fact that these two things have been, these two projects have been delayed, thank God I got to talk with Dick, uh, Richard Donner before he passed. We talked for three and a half hours on, oh, on the fabulous. film. That's so fabulous. So both books are going to be really special because the um, the filmmakers and the cast have given me so much of their time, immense amounts of time, but also their memories about working on these films. And, um, you know, I, and I'm, I'm a person who likes to ask in infinitesimal details and questions hopefully not in a annoying way but in a knowledgeable way and i think people people feel that and uh they they've been very generous with me so i have some wonderful stories to tell about these two beloved films yeah i think it hasn't gremlins been talked about as doing a remake of gremlins as well of course they've been talking about that forever um forever. you know when they were working on uh, the first sequel, um, there were so many different writers who came in and did different passes until um, Joe and uh, Mike Finnell came back. And then they got Charlie Haas on board and Charlie cracked that one. And, you know, they've been talking since about doing a third one or a complete reboot. Or um, they have done an animated series for Gremlins that's currently on HBO or, excuse me, Max. It's only Max now that you can watch the first season on Max. Joe was a consultant on it. Personally, I've seen a lot of like critics were crazy for it, and they said, "Oh, this feels like a Joe Dante film." 
<laughs> it didn't feel like Joe to me. Um, Joe is <laughs> Joe too is a very singular filmmaker. Um, many might imitate, but few can be Joe Dante. So I I don't think it had Joe's charm, even though he was a consultant. Now, Steve, they should have had your... they should have had Joe directed. Is what I'm trying to oh, say. <laughs> is your book still in print? It is. It is. Um, so I want to I want to tell here, even though I can't show the whole cover. The real <laughs> title is Steven Spielberg and Duel: The Making of a Film Career. And uh, can you pick it up on Amazon? Amazon has it. Um, the I guess all major bookstores, and even I shouldn't say major bookstores. You know, if you have a bookstore, especially a brick and mortar that you go to, um, ask them if they can order it. That's always great to support. You know, in, uh, independent bookstores, uh, not just the the big ones, but Amazon, it is readily available, um, hardcover, uh, paperback, and Kindle. And um, uh, the publisher, uh, it's an academic publisher, but Roman and Littlefield, they they have it still in stock as well. Oh, cool. Well, we have been listening to Stephen Awalt, uh, who's been telling us wonderful stories about the making of Duel. If you've made it this far in our show, why don't you subscribe? Uh, it's free. We're available on Apple, Amazon, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We would really appreciate it. And please don't hesitate to recommend us to your friends and family. Um, we we love our audience, and their audience is, so far seems to love us very well. Steve, it's been great. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Steve. It was great talking with you. And I actually, before I go to bed here, I'm going to look up your Lorraine Gary interview and oh, listen very or watch it tonight before I go to sleep, finish off my coffee and enjoy that. So I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I oh, can't yeah. wait to hear her talk. It was audio before we went to video. We've gone to okay. video recently, so it'll be an audio, definitely. Okay. I'm your host, I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. And thanks everybody. It's been a lot of fun tonight.